again. Good morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, we have been in a series traveling through looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter. Started that back in June. We are going to wrap up uh, by the time we hit Thanksgiving, so just a couple of more weeks. I want to show you a slide here. We looked at some of this last week and just give you a little bit of recap of where we've been the last two weeks because we started into Peter's second letter, the second letter that Peter writes to the early churches. Um, and I raised the question two weeks ago, and then again we raised it again last week, and I keep saying I'm going to answer it, but it's actually not going to get answered today either. Um, but anyhow, here's the question, which is, Peter talks about this day of great cataclysm. He talks about the day of the Lord and the burning up of the sky and how the, how the earth, the material elements of the earth are going to be dissolved. And that's all in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through, I think it was 13. Um, so just four verses there. It doesn't give a lot of details, so it leads us to, you know, when you read it just at service value, it seems like he's talking about a global event. It seems like he's talking about some great day of cataclysm where the entire earth is going to um, be subject to, these, um, to this, this disillusion by fire. And it may well be that that's what Peter's referring to there. And so in Paul's letter uh, to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talks about this day. And it, it, it is inaugurated at the return of Christ. So at the end of time, at the end of human history, Christ will return. He'll appear in the sky, bringing with him the souls of those who have gone on before in Christ. And that their bodies, will, their physical bodies will be resurrected from the earth or from the sea or wherever they happen to reside. Their physical bodies will be resurrected from the earth. Their reconstituted bodies will be resurrected in the sky, will float up into the sky to rejoin their souls in, in the sky. And so this is, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, we looked at that two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at this passage here in 2 Peter chapter 3 and kind of examined it and saw how it's, there's some possibility that Peter is actually not thinking of a global event, but rather he's thinking of a more localized destruction. That localized destruction is talked about in Matthew chapter 24. And so today, I want to spend our time looking at that event, and then really it's going to happen next week. We're going to compare. I was planning on doing it today, but I got in my studies and I was like, that's just too much for one Sunday. So anyhow, so we're going to next week compare 2 Peter chapter 3 to both of these texts and to see, you know, is Peter, which, which of these two events do we think Peter's talking about? Because it's not crystal clear. It's not crystal clear. And we'll see more of that next week. So today we're just going to look at Matthew chapter 24, which talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Our text comes from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Here we go. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one, here's one, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You may be seated. I've never gotten that right. It's always so strange the way he worded that. But anyhow, um, so let's kind of take a look at these verses together. We'll start at verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now here's a question. What temple is Jesus just leaving? It says that he left the temple 
and was going away. So what temple was Jesus leaving? Well, he wasn't up in Galilee. He wasn't over in Bethany. Jesus, at the time when he says these words, and the experience is this, the context of it is Matthew 24, that he's in the temple in Jerusalem. So he's in the big Jewish temple. Now, I've got a picture of that for you. I think I've got a picture of that. Yeah, I've got a picture of that for you here. This is actually just a scale model. I believe it's at the Museum of Israel. At least that's what the little blurb said at the bottom of the picture I pulled off of Google. But in any case, this is a picture of a scale model of the temple itself, the temple complex, back in the first century. Um, this is, uh, and so this was this temple that you're looking at was the temple that was uh, refurbished by Herod the Great starting in 19 B.C. But this temple was actually built in 516 B.C. Um, at when Haggai and one of the other prophets were pushing the Israelites, hey, look, we need to get our temple rebuilt because the Babylonians had destroyed it 70 years before in 586 B.C. The temple that was there before, the one that you're looking at here that was refurbished by Herod in 19 B.C. and that was built in 516, but then was destroyed. I'm going backwards, right? So 580, 586 was destroyed. The one that was there in 586 that got destroyed was actually built around 970, maybe 960 BC, depending on which scholar you're reading from. And so that, this was, that temple was built by Solomon, David's son. And so you've had two temples that have been constructed on this site, one by Solomon and one by the Israelites in 516. Uh, or completed in 516, and then refurbished in 19 BC by Herod. So the temple that Jesus is walking out of is the temple of Herod, or the Herod, Herod's temple, they called it. In other words, refurbished by King Herod. Um, you can see there uh, the outer courtyard. It's formed by these massive walls surrounding the complex. And it's in that courtyard where Jesus would have been teaching. Rabbis would go into this courtyard, um, and especially at the week of Passover, you'd have tens of thousands of people here, so this is not a small crowd. And so Jesus is teaching the Jewish people. And so that's some of what you're reading here in Matthew 23 and 24, some of what Jesus had been saying to the people. Now, he's having a private conversation by the time we get to 24 just with him and the disciples. Um, that temple that you're looking at, we're still looking at that temple, right? Okay. We're still, all right, so that temple that you see there was actually, then, then that one got destroyed um, in 70 AD by the Romans. So there was a guy by the name of Vespasian. He was a Roman general, and they were having a civil war because there were like turnover, turnover after turnover, about a year and a half period of Caesars, guys that kept stabbing one another because they wanted to be on the throne. And so, so this threw Rome into some civil war and some time of turmoil. And so Vespasian, he was considered the great general. Everybody regarded him very highly. And so General Vespasian, um, they recall him from the war against the Israelites. See, the Israelites had revolted against the Jewish people, or against their uh, occupying force, against the Roman occupying force back in 67 AD. And in 67 AD, they kicked the Romans out. And so Vespasian comes in 69 AD, so two years later, to put down this Jewish rebellion, this Jewish revolt. Well, he doesn't even make it down into Palestine. He doesn't even round the corner of Syria, heading down along the shores of the, of the Mesopotamia, or Mesopotamian, the, uh, whatever that, Mediterranean, sorry. Mediterranean, <laughs> Mesopotamia is the area. <laughs> it was a crazy week. <laughs> so anyway, so he doesn't even make it there. He gets recalled back to go put this civil war down, and they actually end up crowning Vespasian, General Vespasian, as the 10th. Uh, Caesar of all the Caesars since Julius. And so Vespasian leaves his son Titus in charge. And so Titus ends up uh, coming, he leads, and puts down the Jewish revolt, encircles the city of Jerusalem, and, uh, and, and completely destroys the city of Jerusalem. And this happened in 70 AD. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that was inside of the city, 
in 70 AD when it was sieged by the Romans. He was a Roman, he was a Jewish historian, but also kind of worked for the Romans. I'm not sure how he got out okay, because most everybody else died. But Josephus records that the Roman army slaughtered the Jews by the hundreds of thousands. Think about that. That's how many people were finding, trying to find shelter in here. He, they slaughtered the Jews by the hundreds of thousands. He said so severely that blood ran through the streets of Jerusalem. So some of the Jews that were taken captive by the Romans were forced into manual labor, and they were forced to dismantle that temple that you see there. Um, they were, and literally the Romans wiped the foundation completely clean of everything that you see. Um, uh, here's another picture for you. This is of the Arch of Titus. Uh, Titus had a younger brother, I think it was a younger brother, named Domitian. And Domitian stabbed his brother when it was time for his brother to take the throne. There's a lot of that going around apparently back then. But anyhow, people really liked Titus. They liked Vespasian. They liked his son Titus. And so Titus gets stabbed by his brother. Well, to kind of appease the masses um, and say, well, I actually really like my brother because this rumor was going around that Domitian had done this to his brother. Um, Domitian builds a memorial to his brother. And this is in Rome today. There's three pictures that you see there. It's the, called the Arch of Titus. And it was built as a c commemorate the, the, the rebellion, putting down the rebellion of the Jewish people by, uh, by Titus. Um, and so you can see in one of those, a couple of those pictures, they're up close shots, up underneath and inside the arch. You can see the menorah from the furnishings of the temple. So they, they came inside the temple, they, they decimated the temple completely, but they also took the furnishings out and then marched those back to Rome. And so that's what you're seeing there on the Arch of Titus is some of those temple furnishings like the incense altar, like the menorah um, and other articles that they, came, that they took as uh, bounty, if you would, uh, of, their, of their conquer. Um, Back to our text. So Jesus walks out of the temple in Jerusalem. He's refer the re Herod's refurbished temple, and this thing is opulent. I mean, Herod spared no expense in refurbishing and, and reconstructing this thing. Or not really reconstructing, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. He DIY'd it, I guess. I don't know. But anyhow, it was regarded back in that day as one of the great wonders of the ancient world. People would take vacations to come and see this because it was just so amazing to behold. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So the disciples, I mean, they've probably seen this temple a hundred times in their lifetime. But even then, it still is, they're all struck by it. I mean, the grandeur of it, the opulence of it. And they begin to comment to Jesus about what it is that they see. Jesus knows something, though, that the disciples don't know. And so he says, hey, look, gang, before you all get all fallen over yourselves and get too attached to this thing, he says, verse 2, but he answered them, you see these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is predicting what ends up happening in 70 A.D. Now Jesus says this in, around, in and around the year 33 A.D., again, depending on which scholar you're, you take your, your notes from. But he says this around 33 A.D. And in 70 A.D., in less than 40 years, everything that Jesus just predicted to the disciples transpired. He says, not even one of these stones will be left upon another. Now, what sits on that site today, after 70 A.D., so the site sat empty for over 500 years, well, over 600 years. Um, what sits on that site today, and I've got a couple pictures here for you, is what's called the Dome of the Rock. It's, it's really the dome over the rock. 
It's a, it's the, a Muslim holy site or a Muslim mosque that has been constructed on the site where the temple used to be. And it, the, the, it's just a big open uh, facility. When you walk inside, we can't walk inside. We're not Muslims. They won't allow us to walk inside of there. But look at, again, Google, right? There's pictures online. You can see all these sorts of things. But it's just a covering over top of an exposed rock. And that is the rock where Abraham is said to have sacrificed or was going to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. But, of course, the, the Muslims changed that story around and say it was Ishmael. Um, nevertheless, it's on top of this site uh, where the temple used to be. Um, you can see the, in fact, one of the pictures has a little red line. I don't know if y'all can see the red line from where you're at. But that's a circle of the wailing wall. It's where the Jewish people go and they literally pray. They've been doing this for 2,000 years. Praying for God to rebuild and bring back his temple. And they just, they stand there and they pray. And they quote scripture and they remind God of his promises to the Jewish people. And asking him to rebuild his temple and to return. Um, now, it is no surprise that as soon as Jesus says this, that not one of these stones is going to be left upon another, that it sparks a lot of questions. And so the disciples ask him, verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? When is this going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, will there be any indicators? Will there be any signs that we can be on the lookout for to know that this cataclysm is coming, that this grand destruction is coming? Uh, because, you know, we'd really like not to be around when that happens. I'm sure that's part of self-preservation's kicking in there. Now, Jesus answers their question when in verse 34. So we have to jump ahead a little bit here. Let's take a look at that. Verse 34, he says, Jesus says to them, again, he's walked out of this temple. It's clear what temple he's talking about. I mean, that fits the context of the passage. He's not talking about some temple off thousands of years into the future. He's talking about that temple that he just walked out of, that the disciples are asking about. That's the context of the passage. Verse 34, he says, he asked me when, here's when. Truly I say to you, this generation, a generation for the Jewish people is 40 years. When they used the word generation, they were always thinking 40 years. Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things take place. In other words, within a window of 40 years, 33 AD, Jesus says this, within a window of 40 years, the things which I have just told you will take place. So again, Jesus makes this prediction from 33 AD that sometime in the next 40 years, uh, the Roman legions will come, and that's exactly what happened. Now, that is a broad time frame reference that Jesus gives within the next 40 years, but as for a specific time reference. If you're asking me for a specific date, Jesus says, verse 36, but, a, but concerning the day and the hour, like when it's absolutely going to happen, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the sun, not even myself, exactly precisely the day or the hour. All I can tell you is that it's going to happen within the next 40 years in this generation. Now, Jesus also reveals that there is one person there in verse 36 who does know when this is going to happen. He says the Father only. That is that God the Father in heaven knows this when it's going to take place. But given that I can't tell you the day or the hour, here's what I want for you to do. And so Jesus goes on in Matthew 24. He says verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 
All right, to sum up, Jesus answers the question when by saying that it will happen in this generation, that is within the next 40 years. However, if you're asking for a specific day and a specific hour, I cannot give that to you. I will not give that to you. Just be ready. All right, what about these signs? Remember, that was one of the questions they asked was about the when, but now they've also asked, well, are there some signs that we can know, that we can anticipate, that we'll know that this, this, this horrible day is coming, this day of destruction for that temple? Um, well, throughout Matthew chapter 24, Jesus lists off a bunch of signs. And so I'm not going to get to all of them this morning, but let's just take a look at a couple of them. Look at verse 4. It says, see to it that no one leads you astray. Verse 5. Many will come in my name in this 40-year window and will say, I am the Christ. And this is exactly what Josephus reports, um, that during the reign of, I can't remember who the Caesar was between, maybe it was Caligula, then after Caligula, whoever the, who, anyway, doesn't matter. Josephus, our historian, records that there was a lot of people showing up in the about 15 years lead up to the 70 AD destruction who were out there around Israel running around saying that they were the Messiah, saying that they were the Christ. So this, was, this is not something new in Israel necessarily. People have been doing this for generations. But in this little window, there was a lot of people who were claiming to be the Christ. <clears throat> Verse 6, wars and rumors of wars. You know, in 70 AD, three years before this destruction would happen, what did the Jewish, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people revolt, right, against the, the Israelites? I'm sorry, against the Romans. They kicked the Romans out of Israel. Wars and rumors of wars. In verse 7, he mentions earthquakes. In verse 11, again, he mentions false prophets. He says in verse 14 that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'm going to stop right there and talk about that one for just a little bit. Last week, I, I introduced you all to two Greek words. Sometimes get, some, one of them gets interpreted earth. Sometimes the other one gets interpreted world. Um, and these are the Greek words gain and cosmos. Uh, we said that the word gain um, is a Greek word. And it literally means dirt. It's referring to, like, if you were to say, I'm going to go outside and dig in the earth. That's where this word gets used. It literally means dirt. Um, however, in a first century context, people in the first century, especially in this part of the world, would have, when they heard that word gain, it would have meant something different to them than it means to you and I. When you, we read in our translation that something about the earth, we think the whole globe. But that's not really what they heard, what they, what, ha, what they had in their mind. Instead, what they had in their mind was this map that I've got here for you of what's called the Fertile Crescent. It was the area of arable soil surrounding the desert, um, and it ran from, southern, or from northern Egypt all the way up through the Levant, all the way up and around Mesopotamia, over into modern-day Iraq. Um, and this was, a, this was what, when they used the word gain, this is what, in the first century context, this is what they had in mind. That area of Mesopotamia, that area of the world. Not the whole thing, but that specific part of, uh, of the world. Um, if they had wanted to, and I, I think back to our slide here, if, I wanted, if they wanted to uh, refer to the whole globe, the entire world, they had a word for that in Greek. And it was the word cosmos. And I mentioned to you last week, I think it was John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the cosmos, the world, the whole thing, not just the folks in the, in the gain, not just the folks in the fertile crescent, but the whole world that he gave his one and only son. Um, now what's interesting is when we get to verse 14, so go ahead and flip back over to verse 14. When we get to verse 14, and Jesus says, The gospel we've proclaimed throughout the whole world, Jesus uses neither one of those other words. I, again, nerd, I, I thought that was really interesting. 
Um, so let me just kind of, let me share with you what he does use. So I've got another slide for you here. It shows the word gain, shows the word cosmos, and then another word that they would have used in the Greek to refer to the world, and it was the word oikumen. Um, oikumen is a word that is specific, also identifies a specific region of the larger world, uh, specifically, and sometimes it would be used in certain contexts to refer to the whole globe. Oikumen could refer to the whole globe, but a lot of times it also referred to just the Greek-speaking part of the cosmos. Did you hear that? Oikumen, in some contexts, was used to refer to the Greek-speaking part of the world. Uh, in other words, the Roman Empire. For example, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the oikumen, not cosmos, oikumen should be registered. Now, is Caesar intending to tax Mongolia? No. Is he intending to tax Ethiopia? No. He's not, he doesn't control those areas. He couldn't tax them if he wanted to. I'm sure he wanted to. But he couldn't tax them. And so the point here is that sometimes this word oikumen is a special word, and it's used in biblical teaching here to refer to, a, again, just like gain, a specific part of the larger world. That is the Greek-speaking part of the world. And so back to verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world oikumen throughout the whole Greek-speaking world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Again, this is one of the signs, Jesus says, that when this happens, when the gospel reaches the far ends of Spain and Portugal, when the gospel reaches the far ends of the east out toward the other side of Lebanon, when the Bible reaches the, the, the southern tip around Alexandria um, and, and, and northern, um, northern Egypt, and it reaches those parts of the world, the oikumen, then you can expect that, hey, look, the stuff that I was telling you about is about ready to take place. Um, so you can see where if you don't know the specifics about some of these words, we read just world in our, in our Bible. We read in English, we just read the word earth. Sometimes there's more meaning there than, uh, to the original here than what we hear. Um, think about it. The Apostle Paul logged, I read the other day, over 10,000 miles, mostly on foot. That's New York to L.A. and back four times. <laughs> he was well-traveled. Uh, um, crisscrossed Asia Minor, southern Europe, spreading the gospel, planting churches, plus the missionary efforts of the early church and the evangelistic missions of the apostles themselves. Absolutely within 40 years, uh, the gospel had made it to the ends of the Roman Empire. Paul even confirms this in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, talking about the gospel. Paul says that the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Again, let me reread Jesus' words. You wanted a sign? Jesus says, here's something for you to look for. Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole oikumen as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. All right, that is my treatment of this text for today. There's a lot more in Matthew chapter 24. Again, it, it, it becomes an issue, right? <laughs> How long do we want to delay, right? My stomach's starting to growl, right? So we need to get you on your most important question, Gordon. Let's roll with it, and that's where we're heading now. So, um, uh, so let's, let's talk about that most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, flip back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34. Matthew 24 and verse 34, we read it earlier. 
This is where Jesus gives the basic time frame reference, the window of 40 years. He says, verse 34, this generation, within the next 40 years, will not pass away until all these things take place. And then he follows that up with this statement. And don't miss this statement. He says in verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that when he makes a promise, a prediction, when he says something's going to happen, when he says this is the way it is going to be, that's the way it's going to be. It's better than money in the bank. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've been thinking about a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've learned about him. Maybe you've heard other people talk about him. You've observed him to be, you know, he's a very moral man. He's a kind man. He's a compassionate man. And certainly Jesus is all of those things. He's kind. He's compassionate. He certainly is moral. Um, But he's more than that. He's more than just a mere man. This is God in the flesh. How else could he have known? I mean, what an audacious prediction to make. This this temple's been standing here, Jesus, since 516 B.C. And you think that it's going to get torn down? Who do you think you are? Why would he even even make a claim like that? I mean, to hang the credibility of his ministry and of who he's claiming to be on something like almost obscure like that and impossible like that? Jesus informs his disciples, hey, look, not one stone is going to be left upon another. Friends, Jesus was able to do that because of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. So Jesus proves the trustworthiness of his words Uh, which then should translate for us into our confidence in his words in a whole host of things. So we could, okay, well, if Jesus said that and it happened, then maybe there's some other things that Jesus has said. Maybe there's some other promises that Jesus has made me that I know he's just as good for those as he was for the prediction that he made. For example, Jesus said, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, the whole thing, That God the Father gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's a promise. And friends, Jesus is good to his word. On another occasion, Jesus said, John chapter 14 and verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father. Where is the Father? The Father is in heaven. No one gets to heaven but through me, Jesus said. You may try to find your way to heaven other ways, But Jesus said, again, my words will never pass away. Jesus said, I'm the way, and there's no other way. John chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus talking about the afterlife. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My words will never pass away. Here's what he said, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Again, what an outlandish statement to make that Jesus is going to go up to heaven and prepare a place for me. How can I know that you can do that? Look at 70 AD, friends. 
Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Say, how can I know that Jesus is good for his words? How can I be sure that Jesus will do what he said he would do? Again, just look at his ability to predict and know the future. This is no ordinary man. This is God with flesh on that we're dealing with. So if you're here today thinking about a relationship with Jesus, or if you are here today and already have begun a relationship with Jesus, either way, know this, and I close with these words, Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but when it comes to the words and the promises of Jesus, his words will never pass away. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us from your word. Thank you for a fresh reminder today of just who you are. Lord, you are no ordinary human being. You were God in the flesh. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, we are reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood. Which, Lord, we put our faith and our trust in your work on the cross. You have promised us your word eternal life with you in heaven. Lord, we celebrate that today. God, we ask that as we receive these elements, that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in our heart, build our confidence in you, that we are not serving some arbitrary would-be God, but that we, are fa- we have found and we are serving the true God of the universe. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. I'm going to invite our ushers, I mean our servers, to come to the front. This morning we're going to receive communion by intention. When you come forward to the front, there will be bread here and juice. You'll take the bread and and then just dip it into the juice um, and then make your way back around to your seat. Our ushers will lead you up to the front. On the night which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke the bread, saying, This is my body. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he blessed the cup and he said, This is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you the body of Christ broken for you pagan and the blood of Christ shed for you